This episode is sponsored by 912, a new podcast series from Amazon Music and Pineapple Street Studios that tells the stories of characters whose lives would never be the same after September 11th. Follow 912 wherever you get your podcasts, or you can binge all seven episodes right now on Amazon Music or with Wondery Plus. Thank you also to The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating shows. We are enjoying it, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Big, bold ideas don't move quickly. We can't magically get things done without people without movements and without advocacy and without activism. It's critical to elect good people. It's also critical to stay involved. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Our guest is Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas. She's a New York State Assembly member representing the 34th District, which includes the diverse Queens communities of Jackson Heights, East Elmhurst, Woodside, and Corona. Previously, she served as the executive director of the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice, a position she loved. But running for office excited her even more. She ran with a focus on healthcare and was elected last year. We talk about the intersectionality of the issues that an elected representative needs to address, the value of bringing lived experiences in making public policy decisions, and the political courage that's necessary to serve your constituents. I love advocacy, and I had spent the last two decades of my career in different movements. I worked on everything from disability justice to education to racial justice to immigration. In the last 13 years, I've been at the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. We focused on building power and working in communities and doing organizing, advocacy, and consciousness shift. What I learned over the years of doing advocacy was that we'd have some really great champions in these state houses and in Washington, D.C., However, we also had really awful people, and we had people that would not listen to us, not welcome us into their office, not really hear the plight and the story of our communities. So over the years, I just experienced a gap in leadership and a gap of legislators that really listened to and heard from their community. And in looking at my own district, where I've been active for over 20 years, and seeing a sweep of dynamic new leaders be brought in in 2018. This is the neighborhood that elected Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. We elected a dreamer, Catalina Cruz, in my neighboring assembly district. It was this exciting moment. And we've had just a long legacy of very political white men who's represented districts that are 88% people of color. And all these years of advocacy, I've known that it actually is like people power that changes policy and legislation, but you do need champions in, in these positions. So after enough people asked me to run, I really thought about it. And I was really sad, and I still am, to have left my job at the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health. But I consider myself an activist and an advocate 
in my new capacity. So I've just, you know, moved desk, <laughs> moved roles, moved offices, and I'm still here to do this very similar work, but just in a different capacity. Great. So let's talk about that. How are you serving in a different capacity? Like, how is this work different in serving the constituents of your district? Well, the big difference for me is that in this new capacity as a state legislator, I have to look at so many issues. And I've actually really loved that because I have a lens of intersectionality that I've bringing to all these issues. So I've learned the most about like criminal justice and I've learned so much about housing and taxes and revenue and education. So it's been like jumping into the fire, right? And just really learning the issues very deeply and trying to be the best advocate I can. I think it's helpful to have that very intersectional analysis and to always think about the person most marginalized. So if you know, the undocumented Spanish-speaking immigrant Latina who's trans, right, and is struggling for work and access to health care. If that person is served by whatever policy I'm advocating for, then I've done my job. So I think the lens that I bring from my advocacy experience is really helpful as a legislator. It's very different because now I'm at the different decision-making tables. But I still have to do the same work. I still have to press other electeds. I have to press leadership in the state assembly. I have to work across the aisle. I have to work across houses. And again, convince all these people that these are the policies that are needed. So I, I think being an organizer is a good thing to bring into this role, but it's certainly different. And I would say the government is not as uh, efficient as my experience in the nonprofit sector. I feel like government is very fast paced and not well organized. And I'm really trying to change that culture, at least to the ecosystem in my own office. So I think it actually is good and refreshing to have folks like me in in these um, halls of power, because I think we can change the culture and dynamics that unfortunately we're really used to. You said that government is fast paced. What do you mean by that? Because that sounds like not at all the way that we perceive it from the outside. It's fast paced in terms of the session. The legislative session is January to early June. The first several months is really focused on the budget. April 1st, a budget is due. We have to vote on a budget by law. And then now that the budget's over, it is like a race to get as much legislation as we can get passed by June 10th, which is the last day of session. And it's fast paced in my experience because every advocacy group wants to meet and wants to highlight their bills. And there's thousands of bills before us. And it's just a time crunch because the session ends, I think, in about six weeks. That is the fast paced part. And that's just a legislative piece. As an assembly member, I also have to serve my constituents and address issues in the community. And one example is that we've just had a massive fire and that displaced 400 residents of my neighborhood. And making sure I'm serving those and fighting for those residents is a huge priority for me. So you're juggling all these elements and that's what feels very fast paced. But legislation does move very slow, unfortunately. Okay, now I have a lot of questions that I did not prepare. But let's go first to the people that you are serving. Who are your constituents and why are you passionate about serving them? My district is the 34th Assembly District in Queens. Queens is the most diverse borough in the world. It is 88% people of color. It is 62% immigrant. 
it is nearly 60% Latinx. And when I say Latinx, I mean Peru, Colombia, Ecuador, Mexico, Dominican Republic. You know, you have it all. We also have a 27% of our community that is Asian American or Asian Pacific Islander, but most largely South Asian. So we have people from Bangladesh, Tibet, Pakistan, India, Nepal, like it's just so, so diverse. So there's nearly 200 languages spoken in my district. And that's why for me, it was really important to have someone that reflected in some capacity the diversity of the district, but certainly the values of the district. It's very immigrant heavy. And we need someone who's like a strong advocate on uh, immigrant rights. So for example, one of my biggest priorities out of this budget fight was getting an excluded workers fund because we know, and I know my neighbors are those excluded workers who didn't get unemployment. They didn't get a stimulus check. They didn't get rent relief because of their status. And we were able to get $2.1 billion in a fund to help those families that are struggling and yet have been on the front lines, often risking their own life for others, but have been fully excluded because of their immigration status. I'm so proud to represent such a beautiful and, and diverse and eclectic district. That's awesome. So what is another piece of legislation that you are really excited about that can serve your community in a way that maybe the previous assembly member did not prioritize? One of the biggest things I ran on was healthcare. So I, as I mentioned, I came from the healthcare sector, largely focused on women's reproductive healthcare and reproductive healthcare for all people, because it's not just a women's issue. But in that work, I, I really saw the gaps in health coverage. We're under a capitalist insurance system that insurance companies make money off the backs of denying people health care. And so many people are unhealthy because of that. Um, I work with people who have to choose between paying rent, feeding their family, or getting a mammogram. And those are choices nobody should have to make. So I am fighting like hell for the New York Health Act. It's a universal single-payer plan for New York State. It would radically change the way health is experienced in the state. It would really take the power away from insurance companies and ensure that every single person, despite status and service, like abortion is covered, <laughs> undocumented people are covered, everyone in New York State will be covered. And it's just so visionary and so exciting. And we could actually be a state that's leading while there's a federal push to fight for Medicare for all. So that's something I'm really excited about and really want to build momentum around and ultimately pass. Yeah. How do you approach legislating and what have you learned about what works? I mean, I know you're relatively new to the state assembly, but what are the things that you have discovered really work in getting people to support a bill that you're passionate about and pass it? It's definitely critical to have a campaign behind any bill, especially these like really big transformative pieces of legislation that will radically change the way we, you know, educate in the state or provide health care or provide housing. We need advocates. And actually, that's the most exciting part for me because I am an advocate, but working with the community groups that are people centered and have like membership base has been the most effective strategy. So I'll go back to the excluded workers fund, which initially we asked for 3.5 billion to cover every person who was not eligible for any sort of other relief, mostly because of their immigration status or the type of work that they did. And 
it didn't just get done because there were some really good legislators who cared about it. The essential workers went on a hunger strike for 23 days, and they took their hunger strike to different uh, members' offices. They went up to Albany. It was a statewide effort. They did prayer vigils. They did an Easter celebration. They really worked hard to compel the legislators that were not completely with them to say that this was a human rights issue. These are your constituents. There's excluded workers in every single district. And I heard legislators say, oh, I don't have excluded workers. I live upstate. It's like, no, you do. Open your eyes. There are people who have been excluded from the mainstream economy who are doing the everyday work that have kept your city and your town and your neighborhood afloat, and they deserve equity. But it was those advocates, it was those impacted people that uh, really drove that message home and was really able to shift hearts and minds to get us to a place where we were able to get that bill passed as part of the budget and ultimately keep most of the money that we were fighting for. We didn't get everything, but we got $2.1 billion out of the 3.5 ask, which is pretty significant for the state budget. It literally takes people power. And I say this both as an activist and as an advocate, but now as a legislator, I see it. I see how impactful these campaigns are behind moving legislation and we can do it without it. So tell us why this is a human right and why we must include the people who are excluded Mm -hmm. because of their status? Because people who are excluded from the mainstream economy are still doing the work to keep a mainstream economy. If you think about the health workers, even, there are so many immigrants who are health workers on visas and may not have been able to get any uh, assistance and again are on the front line. There's those that are in the underground economy, but doing the work to keep the city alive. One group of workers I connected directly with were the folks who were cleaning the MTA overnight. So if you remember, the MTA was shut down for a period of several hours. It was 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. And now it's, I think, 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. for a period of cleaning, you know, in light of COVID. And those workers, the people who have cleaned the trains that we won't be infected, were undocumented and excluded. And quite frankly, were abused and exploited. And I heard directly from those workers who were not paid what they should have been paid, who weren't given bathroom breaks, who weren't given equipment, PPE, and weren't given the proper cleaning supplies. So they had to bring their own cleaning supplies because they were given a bucket of dirty water to clean the trains. And they just couldn't do that. It wasn't functional. It didn't work. And those people were subcontracted, right, so that there was less responsibility to provide all the labor laws that they should have been covered by despite their status. And those people were not eligible for many forms of relief that other U.S. citizen or green card holders um, were able to get. So we're still operating a very exploitative system that ignored those folks and left those folks behind, despite the fact that they were literally saving our life. Before we continue our conversation, I want to thank 912, a new podcast series from Amazon Music and Pineapple Street Studios. It tells the stories of characters whose lives would never be the same after September 11th. 
That day, 60 amateur sailors were at sea, filming a reality show on an 18th century replica ship. They were weeks from land and the nearest TV or radio. That morning, a single message was conveyed through their one satellite phone. Four planes hijacked, two towers down, the Pentagon attacked, thousands dead. And that was it. Not a single other piece of information for weeks. What was it like to experience 9-11 in isolation? And how would they make sense of the radically different world they returned to? This is just one of the stories in 9-12. Through them, we begin to realize that there are new lessons to be learned and that we might just have enough distance now from 9-11 to make sense of some things we couldn't understand before. What I love about this show is that it is unexpectedly philosophical. I took stock about how much our lives have changed since then, and in this pandemic time, revisiting 9-11 feels like an opportunity to renew our faith in humanity. Follow 912 wherever you get your podcasts, or you can binge all seven episodes right now on Amazon Music or with Wondery Plus. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Each episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show is a conversation with a different, fascinating guest. There's an episode for everyone, no matter what you're into. In one episode, he tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. And I recommend you check out Jordan's conversation with Lori Santos about happiness being a set of skills we can learn and master, and some tools we can use to hack our own happiness. Jordan is always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. And we're not talking about pop psychology. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom that you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In terms of your new role being in public office, what have you learned about our democracy now that you're on this side? That's a great question. What I learned is that it matters who you elect. There's a new crop of us that come from activism that have a strong vision and set of values that are aligned around dignity and justice and equity and actually question mainstream forms of capitalism and the way we've worked. I found and find that many of my colleagues are more worried about the rich people and whether they're going to leave New York than the people who made them rich, the workers. And it's distressing to see that because we need to stop thinking about taxes and think about wages. And that has been really profound to see that there's folks in office that are Democrats, but still don't hold the most impacted community center in their legislating. So it does matter who you elect. And we just need 
better people. And we also actually need to reimagine the way in which money comes into politics, because if I raise a dollar, I get a dollar. In the city council, if you raise $10, you get an eight to one match. So you get $90. There's different forms of public financing of elections, and that impacts someone's ability to run and win. But it takes money to get there. It takes money and resources to do that. And if we have a more robust matching funds program in the state or in other levels of government, I think we can start seeing new types of people run for office, as we're seeing right now in the city council. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit uh, about what it means to serve in the state assembly. I feel like probably people are pretty ignorant about what the state assembly does, how it relates to the Senate and how it relates to the governor's office. And can you give us a quick primer for New York State? Yep. So there's 150 uh, assembly seats. Each district is about 120 to 150,000 people. We are right now a majority in the New York State Assembly. There's out of the 150 seat, there's 107 Democrats. And, you know, we're known as the lower house, but I will say the people's house because we have a smaller district. So we're, we're like closer to the people. The New York State Senate represent districts of about 300,000 people. So about double uh, that of the state assembly. But essentially for any legislation to move, it has to be voted in, in the same capacity in the Assembly and in the Senate. And then once both houses vote on a bill, it then gets sent to the governor, the executive chamber, to sign. He could veto it, he could sign it, or he could just let it pass into law after a certain period of time. So it's really important that there's a relationship between the Assembly and the Senate to pass bills that are aligned. Oftentimes, and most times a bill that's introduced in either house will have a sponsor in the other house so that we can move them more swiftly and and that there's not discrepancies within bills. Ultimately, it's critical to have good assembly members and good state senators, and then we're able to pass laws that impact New York State in specific. So now that you are an assembly member, what have you discovered about uh, maybe specifically to New York State, but uh, perhaps just about governing in general that is totally different than you imagined uh, or that we have a common misconception about that you wish people would know? Legislators are not magical. <laughs> I wish we were. <laughs> I feel magical sometimes, but um, there's always a blame of legislators for everything. And as I mentioned, it is a fast-paced, dynamic role, but legislation does move slowly. And that's unfortunate because there's so many stakeholders at play for any piece of legislation. You know, for the New York Health Act, there's obviously an insurance industry, there's the unions, there's uh, the physicians, there's a patient's advocacy group. There's there's lots of factors that have to be thought about and considered as you move any piece of legislation. And there's often unintended consequences. For those reasons, big, bold ideas don't move quickly. We can't magically get things done without people, without movements and without advocacy and without activism. It's critical to elect good people. It's also critical to stay involved and knowing that this, these conversations around civic engagement, I have to press and remind people that it takes advocacy and it takes activism and it takes community leadership to actually move the needle. 
and an elected official alone can't get it done. I'm in a body that 107 of us out of 150 are Democrats. We should be getting everything done, but it doesn't work that way because New York State is actually very diverse. And in my district, we're dealing with the MTA and someone else's district, they're dealing with farmland and cows and hunting. And that's just not my jam, but I have to honor that that's part of the things that legislator has to think about. And I'm thinking about the subways and overcrowding and other issues. So it's a very diverse state. There's many issues at play. There's many perspectives at play. So it's important to have continual engagement in the process. It's not just electing someone, it's staying involved. Yeah, I like that you pointed that out, um, that New York State is really diverse and that the issues that are, let's say, in Binghamton are totally different than they are in Queens. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like you said, you have to honor that. So how is your lived experience as a woman, as an educator, as an advocate, shaping your priorities as a legislator? It's so important, right? I think people who bring lived experiences to the table legislate in more authentic ways. I'm a mom. I've worked in the reproductive health field. I've had my own health issues. I've dealt with pregnancy. I've dealt with parenting. I've dealt with the school system, the health system, both being a worker and being a executive, being a daughter of an immigrant. My mom's Puerto Rican, my dad's from Paraguay. So my, my Puerto Rican side, I recognize the oppression and dynamics against Puerto Rican folks and their U.S. citizens. And I understand the dynamics that immigrants face because of my father's experience and my lived experience. So all that's so important. And as someone who grew up really working class, I, I think that I'm always holding that very center in my advocacy and in my legislating. And... I think that's so important that we have people that bring that life experience to the table. And I think that's why it's exciting to see the new crop of leaders who won in the state assembly. I think it's exciting to see the new crop of folks who are running for city council across the city in New York. And I think as we continue to progress, we're going to see just more and more dynamic, but everyday people run because that's actually what we need. I like it. So what advice do you have for everyday people who might be thinking about running for office and can bring their lived experience to the legislative process? It is very difficult, um, but you can do it. There's no job requirements. Like, it's not like you have to have done X, Y, Z to get to run for office. It's more of your political courage. Like, are, are you willing to talk about the things that are hard? Are you willing to go against the grain Are you willing to debunk the status quo? It is really hard. And as a woman and a woman of color, my experience running has been like, you don't belong, you're not good enough. Like other people are more deserving of this role and this position because of X, Y, Z that they did in the community. And that's not okay. And I had to confront and face those voices and continue to push beyond them. So you do need like fortitude and sense of resilience to move forward, but we can do it, right? I did it. I'm a proof of that. And there's so many of us that ran that are newcomers to the game, but they have really been bold legislators because they just bring a realness and an authenticity to the position. 
So how did you confront those voices, those naysayers? My partner put a sticker on my computer one day when I was sort of upset about terrible things that somebody said about me. And it said, winners focus on winning and losers focus on winners. And it was a reminder that sometimes when you are getting attacked, it's because people see you as a threat. So I, I hold that advice because it, it really helped continue to keep me focused on my goal of winning and my goal of representing a community that deserves the representation that I bring to the table and to not focus on the noise around me and that they were focusing on me because they saw that I was getting momentum and leading and it hurt them and it served me. <laughs> um, and just holding that vision and I and the prize was really important. So that's something I share with lots of other candidates who are running and they're feeling demoralized because they're getting attacked. And I said, you know what? I think it's good <laughs> and it's hard and it sucks, but it's good because that means that you're a threat. Because if you weren't getting attacked, it means that no one was paying attention to you. They're trying to take you down, but you hold your head up high. You lead with integrity and dignity and just focus on winning the race and the task at hand. And, you know, you'll feel good that you ran with integrity. So even if you lose, you lose with dignity. Yeah, that's awesome. Very, very hopeful and productive. So as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to help promote and support courageous candidates like you who are willing to go against the grain and really are willing to stand up for their constituents and advocate for them and their needs? So to win, it takes so much. It takes tons of volunteers. It takes money. Uh, it takes support, both emotional and physical <laughs> support. So I really encourage folks to look at the races that are ahead. There's some self-education. I think our school system needs to do a better job of thinking about civic engagement as really center and critical in, in curriculum. I've been called Congresswoman. I've been called all sorts of things. But it's important to say, no, I'm an assembly member and that this is the role of the assembly and this is what kind of laws we pass and this is who it impacts. So the education is important. But once you have the education and there's races happening, it's really important to look at candidates and learn about them and then get behind them, get involved, knock on doors safely. Right now, a lot of things are outdoors instead of in apartment buildings, but be willing to stand out in the street and hand out flyers and talk about candidates. Be willing to give some money. Every bit of money helps, even for those that don't have matching funds, like it still makes it makes a difference. Small dollar donations are really meaningful if you don't have the resources. And talk to neighbors and family members and community members about the election. And one thing as an immigrant rights act activist and advocate, I always say every single person has a job. So many of my volunteers were not documented, but every single one of them had a role. And even if they couldn't vote, they can make phone calls, they can knock on doors, they can go out in the street, they could just tell their neighbors and loved ones to come out for me. So civic engagement has no borders and we need everyone to get involved. Good advice. Here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? My son, seeing and remembering that everything I do is gonna impact him and I think about indigenous populations that always think about the seven generations. 
I sit on the Environmental Conservation Committee, so the policies that come before my committee are going to help the next seven generations of New Yorkers be able to live in a healthy environment and breathe clean air and drink clean water. And it's our responsibility right now to do that. I hold my son and our children center in my work, and I feel hopeful that there will be the next generations of leaders that will continue the fight. And seeing, again, the new crop of folks who are raising their hand to run for office that see, that experience that, have been on the front lines of those movements, um, are really going to create the change that we need. So I'm excited about new leadership and young people who are going to really get us there. Yes, I agree. That is very exciting. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight, and thank you for your service to your constituents. Thank you. This was fun. After a season of pounding the pavement on the importance of local and state elections, it's really special to be able to interview an actual state assembly member. It's all the more impressive that Jessica Gonzalez Rojas is so dedicated to serving her constituents, whether that's the undocumented working to clean the subways or most recently the victims of the massive flooding after Hurricane Ida. I also appreciate her reminder that elected representatives are not magical and that citizens need to be involved as well. Our civic engagement is critical in passing legislation that affects us all. And finally, I like how she talks about her lived experience being impactful in her work as a legislator. She's not an abstract stereotype. She's living proof that it really does matter who we elect. Join us for a new season on October 21st, when we'll be taking a deep dive on the social contract and unveiling a sharp new format of the show. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Zach Travis. Listen to us every week on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.